that's how I started. I didn't come from a background of money. I surely did not have any savings. And I just took the chance because what's the worst that could happen? I'm already in the United States. If I have to go work at McDonald's, it's way better than anything I've seen where I come from. There's still an opportunity. You can work, you can have a place to stay. So to me, the bottom was still a very high bar. <laughs> so I took the chance. The water's fine, homie, jump into the deep end. So it you will reap it. We're talking how to start it, how to grow it, how to keep it. Take a deep breath. You are now rocking with founders. And we're live. Amina, I'm so happy to have you here today. The first company I started, uh, my co-founder and I came into the first pharmacy that we're trying to sell our software to. And we were like, hey, Amina, so nice to meet you. And she takes us to the back room. And like 30 seconds into our terrible pitch, Amina, take a break. Let me tell you, <laughs> let me tell you what <laughs> pharmacy is all about. And honestly, that just led to me learning so much and doing what I do today. And it wouldn't have happened without you. So. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. So you have an awesome story. If you don't mind spending a little bit from an entrepreneurship angle of the story of how you raised the funds and how you came to the U.S. from Kenya. Yes. So I was born and raised in Kenya. And during high school, I was fascinated by the lifestyle in the United States because I happened to find this show called 90210 <laughs> and so i became obsessed and i would watch and ask myself where is this place and how come i've never seen it before so that began my mission to get to united states and so i went told my parents that i would love to go and study in the united states and of course everyone laughed at me and said how you need money to go to america and I said, oh, so between me and United States, it's money? Okay, I'll figure it out. So one morning I went to my high school classmates and I said, guys, I have an idea. You guys are going to help me get to America. And everyone laughed at me and they said, how? I said, I have to fundraise. I need to get money so I can go to college. So what we're going to do is we're going to put up a show in this town. And we're going to sell tickets. And these tickets is how I will fund my way to United States. So I assembled everyone. Mombasa Island, where I grew up, it's a multi-city. So we have Indians, we have different tribes, we have Arabs. And, and so I said to everyone, we're going to do a cultural show. So you're Indian, you're going to perform Indian dances, you're going to perform Ethiopian culture, whatever it is. And so I, everyone was on board. They thought it was really fun. And so I went to my dad and I said, I'm going to host a show to raise money. What I need from you is access to Fort Jesus. This is a museum. It's a 400 year old museum that my dad was the chief curator. And I said, that's all I need is the space and for folks to build me a stage. So they did that. And my friends and I went to all the high schools, everyone in our town, we were sold out of these tickets. And yes, we were sold out. And wow. then I was like, I've seen in shows that when you go to these shows, you have to have food. So I approached the local restaurants and I was like, do you want to come to my show and you can sell your food and you can give me some of the proceeds? 
So everything was a success. I raised money and I was able to go to the U.S. Embassy, present my application and my bank statement and got a visa to come to the United States. Except I didn't know that Blacksburg, Virginia was not Beverly Hills. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. I, I just think that's ultimate fearless entrepreneur. So then how did you end up deciding to start a pharmacy? It sounds with like fearless attitude, you could have started anything from yeah, a small business to a large business to any industry. Why pharmacy? Yes. So I've always started with an end in mind. That has always been my approach. Just like the story I just told you, I needed to get to the US. What is my barrier to get to the US? And then let me work on that. So after pharmacy school, I was very interested in clinical opportunities. I wanted to be a clinical pharmacist. I was very passionate with HIV AIDS care because of all that was happening when I was growing up in the 90s in Kenya. So I had an interest to see how I could bring value or service to the individuals that are infected or affected with HIV. So when I, when I was about to finish, I had to apply for residency so I could learn more in becoming this clinical specialist. And I realized there was a barrier. In order for me to stay in the United States, now I had to convert my student visa to an H-1 visa, which is a working visa. So as I was interviewing for these great opportunities with John Hopkins, with UNC, you name it, they had great programs that I could do a one year of residency, but then I thought this was a gamble because as an international student, you only have one year to find an employer who can sponsor you. So I didn't want to gamble with the residency. What if I didn't like it? What if they didn't like me? And now I'm out of this one year period. So instead, I accepted a job with the chain pharmacies because they were able to sponsor foreign students. So I got in and I tell you, it was the longest two years. <laughs> <laughs> it was the longest two years. And I started thinking again, what is my barrier to get to what I want to do? I was never thinking entrepreneurship. I was never thinking opening a pharmacy. I just knew how I wanted to practice. And that's what I was looking for. So when I was working at the chains, I loved my patients. They loved me. We had, I tell you, they would wait for me on my day off to come because I took the time to serve these individuals. But you know what? the system wasn't built to really take care of patients. It's a system built on patients in and out, and I'm a relationships person. So I was finding dissatisfaction. And I also know as much as I like clinical pharmacy, I don't want to be in the hospital setting. I like ongoing relationships. I, like, I don't wanna see people for a week or a few days and they leave. I always wondered on my rotations, I wonder if they're better. I wonder if I could call them and see that what we did actually worked. Because that was always inside me, I knew I needed to be in the community where people would come and I know where they lived and I would see them more often. And I had to find a solution. And because it didn't exist, and I went to school in Philadelphia and I wasn't exposed to a lot of independence, so I didn't know much about the business of pharmacy. So I left the chain. I was able to volunteer at an independent pharmacy while working 
in an infusion pharmacy just because I wanted the people interaction. So the infusion pharmacy was great for me two years after my chain experience, but it wasn't a cubicle. Trust me, I wanted to see people. I loved my coworkers, but I needed action. I needed people who came with their pets. I needed to hear some of what is happening outside today, the news, because that was my source of news and entertainment. And so I said that I needed to find a community pharmacy. So I volunteered and then this individual was phenomenal. And I loved taking care of patients in the community, except she got diagnosed with cancer had to sell her pharmacy, and I was back to square one. And that's when I went to Google, and I said, how do you open a pharmacy? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I got some information, and I found contacts, and I said, let me find a location. Best places to pharmacy location in Charlotte area. And a phone number popped up. So I called this number. And funny enough, this person says, yes, actually I have a space that would be great. Could we meet? When he told me the address, it was across the street from the CVS pharmacy that I had worked. So this was huh. not intentional. This is not me finding a way to go back into that community because I don't even live in that area. So I said, wow, this is a sign. So I went there and I said, I want this space. And Next thing, I called the wholesaler and I said, I want to open a pharmacy. McKesson's going to get a kick out of this because they told me, do you have a business plan? And I said, not really. I just know I want to open a pharmacy. <laughs> so they didn't want me. They said I needed to have my five to 10 year business plan. And I had to have all these numbers. They gave me their worksheet. I looked at the worksheet and I said, I know what I can do in this community, especially this location. I've served patients here. I know what they need. So McKesson couldn't give me an opportunity and I went with a local small North Carolina mutual and they trusted me with 12 months of inventory, no payment, no interest. And that was it. That's how I started. I didn't come from a background of money. I surely did not have any savings. And I just took the chance because what's the worst that could happen? I'm already in the United States. If I have to go work at McDonald's, it's way better than anything I've seen where I come from. There's still an opportunity. You can work, you can have a place to stay. So to me, the bottom was still a very high bar. <laughs> so I took the chance. Amazing story. Yes. That, 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 that's incredible. How did you figure out the business of being a pharmacist, like how, what was that process like and what kind of mistakes did you make figuring that process out? So the process was, I was a very good clinician, had great patient retention, but I didn't understand numbers. The first time I realized I didn't understand numbers is when I got to the end of the year and the accountant told me, here's your tax bill. And I said, where am I going to get this money from? I don't have it in the bank. And he said, you made money. And that became a frustration of how do you say I made money, but it's not in my bank. So I realized there was a gap of understanding receivables, payable, and you're working with third parties so they don't pay you when you, when you dispense. So I was really frustrated and I wanted to sell the pharmacy. And I said, this is not for me. I'm really frustrated. And another frustrating thing was people management. 
right? Naturally, I like people, so I'm a pleaser. So there are things that I should have corrected, but I didn't. So those started frustrating me in terms of maybe the technicians coming late and me letting it slide because, well, at least they showed up. That was my attitude, right? <laughs> but it became a bad culture. And so a combination of managing people and not understanding reimbursement. I was very good in pharmacy school, had very high grades, but the wholesale of math is a whole different level. <laughs> I could not figure out how you actually make money. So what I did is I went to a pharmacy conference. <laughs> I saw an advertisement that said, one, I was sold because it was in Florida and I could go to Disney. They said you could write off this <laughs> trip. <laughs> so I got there and I listened and I was very much impressed with systems. I had never looked at business as a system. I looked back at my pharmacy and I realized everything was driven by me. If Amina's not there, there's no business. Right. So there were very great speakers. I was inspired. I was re-energized, encouraged that, again, I sat with the end of my, in mind and I was like, uh-huh, I'm missing systems. And I heard that businesses are ran by systems and then pe people run the systems. And But I was, everything was around people. So I went back with a promise that I will build systems. And I will build systems to free me because I like innovation. I like building the next thing. And I don't want to be tied into the day-to-day. -day. Now I have a clear pathway. So I was able to learn financial literacy, tax strategies, leadership. I invested a lot in the neuroscience of leadership about how to manage others, how to manage myself. So it all started with me understanding who I was and the distance I needed to travel to become the business owner that I would envision. And that's when everything changed. What, what, what do you mean? How did, cause I feel like a lot of people go to these conferences and we all get inspired and we think, oh, I'm going to change this and I'm going to do this. And then we don't do it. So how did you turn that into action? How did you figure out what to actually do in the business? I'm a very good student. If you tell me what to do, I will do it. That's a commitment I've always had for myself. I take knowledge as a privilege. So if someone is going to teach me, I will try it. And it's okay if I fail, but I will make the next move. So at the first thing I was told was to write my eulogy. What would happen if I died today? And I thought, okay, I came here for business coaching. I didn't really come here to, <laughs> to look at end of life, <laughs> but it changed to, for me that business is a means for me to have the life that I want, the impact that I want. So I was able to very well connect with the why. So the work became effortless. Sometimes people don't want to do the work because you want the easy button. There's no easy button. I wish there was, but there is not. So anything that you need to build that's worthwhile, that's sustainable, what's the why behind it? What's the purpose? I've always been driven by things that have impact on people, places, and purpose. So when I get that alignment, then I can do anyway. Yeah, so that was my why. And that first coach aligning my values and getting the steps needed for me to get those, it became very clear 
that I had to build a business that can generate money, that can empower people. And so I took the playbook. So I do believe in coaches because there are so many blind spots that I did not see. So getting someone else to look at your business was very insightful. And I take feedback very well. Let me ask you, one of the, the things I think you're really good at is hiring the right people and coaching them yourself. So it struck me to say that you say you weren't good at it early on, because right now I'd say you're one of the best I know. So what are some tips? What do you do maybe more tactically to a recruit a players, but then keep them engaged? But also maybe how, how do you make sure B and C and D players don't start showing up in your team? Yeah. So as I told you, the journey started with me understanding myself. And of course I had weaknesses. I had areas that weren't my strength. And so I leveraged with what was my strength and what's the deficit. So I started looking for individuals that can actually complement what I was not good at. I can't sit in front of a desk. I don't like paperwork, but those things are very necessary. So just like the journey of understanding myself and understanding what my strengths are, and then what I was not the best at, I realized everyone is that way too. So it became a journey of strength finders. You will never find the perfect people. They don't exist, but we can look at what they can bring to the table and then use techniques of appreciating our differences. I think a lot of times we'd want to hire people that are like us. So as soon as people are not like us, we reclassify them instead of looking at they're different from me. What is their strength? What value do they bring to this organization? And then let them understand who I am and the value I bring to this organization. And then we can look at the things that are not our best strengths and come up with tactics and skills on how we communicate so we can actually bring cohesion and not apart. So I spend and invest so much time on people development because I realized what made the work hard was not the actual work. It was people. And every time you added people, you added complexity. So it's not about setting goals to what they can do, but it's setting goals on how they can be themselves, but still in alignment with the company values and the driving forces. So I match driving forces to the tasks. So talk a little more about that. When you say you spend a lot on, on, on development, what exactly do you spend on and what do you mean by that? So before we hire anyone, we do a strength finder for the interview. So once we come down to a few candidates, we look for, we do the disc profile, which looks at the four main domains, the dominance, their influence, their steadiness and their compliance. Right. And so once I understood that I realized if this role requires someone who needs to be people oriented, who needs to have influence, who needs to get buy-in. 
getting an introvert for that position is going to be hard for them and hard for us. People can only do so much. They can only adapt so much. If it's not who they are, it won't last. And if it's a position that require a lot of innovation, you need to be very flexible because things can go wrong many ways. So it cannot, you cannot have someone that gets frustrated and they are driven by perfectionism. There's a role for that individual when you're doing compliance, you're doing finance, you're doing things that are static, they don't change, and they need to be accurate every given time. But when you're growing and you're just thinking, I wonder if we could try this process. Individuals with what we call high C or more precise have a hard time of seeing things multiple ways. <laughs> so I don't hold it against them. I understand their limitation. And then I'm able to choose a different way to communicate with them that eases their frustration. So it allows me, who's less precise, come to the table with a lot more information because I know what that team needs to move forward rather than how I would normally do it. Hey guys, we're going to start this. How is it going to be? So they can't take that. So I need to do a little bit more homework and come back to them and then they can take the projects to the next level. So that is knowing who your talents are. And then you build with driving forces. We could all have similar talents, but I learned a long way. I'm not motivated by money. So you could keep increasing my pay. It won't make me do any more than I already is giving. And I learned that by discovering who I was. Again, I told you the journey started with me. So I see people were incentivizing me with bonuses. But yes, I will say thank you and I will be grateful. But nothing really fired me up to stay up late at night and figure out a solution. It didn't. But when I realized the driving force for me, it's purpose. So if I came to your organization and you told me, what, what are we impacting? What is this going to do? You don't have to pay me more for me to work overtime because I'm now working for a leader and a cause. <laughs> so that's who comes to our organizations. But oftentimes we don't spend time to know who they are. We just use a resume and we match them with an algorithm to do a certain job because they have a certain experience. And then we really miss out on what they could really bring to the table. So that's my secret sauce. Just to, to add a little color, it sounds like you do some things, clear things before you hire folks, but I'm just wondering on an ongoing basis, say you're three months in, six months in a year, you have folks that have been with you for several years. How do you continue to invest in that development? Correct. So once we know who they are, then we've created a profile on how to communicate with them, how not to communicate with them, how to, what are their underlying values, driving forces and behaviors. And basically we don't have one size fits all. They're individuals who really require constant touch. They're individuals who require distant touch, right? So the ongoing follow-ups is based on the profile. Some want autonomy, some really need, can you check with me? Am I going on the right direction? So if you don't give them what they need, then they're not happy at the job. And then also we've gone even further when we have a position, right? And someone is not performing, not to blame the individual, 
we go back to the disk profile, we go back to what the position needs. And people are able to say, yes, this is not the position for me. I can see how, why I'm not performing. So we remove the blame from the individual. We let them see. So they, so this builds trust, right? So when you build trust, it becomes a foundation. So our company is really based on us continuing building trust and communication, how to talk to each other, even if we don't agree and how to build trust. So when I do come with feedback, it's not personal. So they have more freedom of being who they are and allowing their strengths to be leveraged by the company and moving forward in that direction. So we create the culture of accountability, but through individual pathways and no one size fits all. And ongoing too, when I say we keep furthering this, it's not a one-time deal. Every year we have these workshops and now we've gone from just the talent and what they can do and ways of communication. I had individuals that I knew they could be leaders but they didn't believe in themselves. And so I started going back to my resources. What do you think this person could be? Why can't they? And I learned that we have about 10 voices, okay, that govern who we are. And these voices started when we were very young. They were there for a reason, but now they may no longer serve us. So we brought in experts and we did, it's called the leadership growth formula and it looked at these 10 voices what they call the saboteurs okay so we did surveys we took the whole team so everyone was able to see their saboteurs right so some people the voice that tells them you're not good enough there's nothing i can do to avoid that it's ingrained in them so you can self-sabotage right some individuals they're really their top voice is control not because they really want to control but the background how they grew up it was necessary for them to control their environment so they show up as a micromanager and they disrupt everyone else but if you don't help them realize that and then give them the steps to show this is what Control promises you, but this is what it really does to your team. And these are the steps that we can work with you to free you. So we move that from being the voice of the saboteur to the voice of the champion. Because these voices actually, when channeled the right way, it can give you amazing results. So I do like those voices, but I need them to change from a negative to a positive. So we say it's either the saboteur or sage. So sage is kinder gives you the possibilities, sees your limitations, but also the upside if you used it in the right direction. Can so I ask yes, a question about that? Yes. I think it's really fascinating around the 10 voices. Is this a mechanism to take somebody who's good to great? Correct. And or is it a mechanism, do those same voices cause somebody to, you started this by talking about people who don't, who show up late. They don't, they're not very good workers. Does this type of mechanism help those people as well? Or is it only for those who are already pretty good, but they're in that kind of self-sabotage phase that, that you're talking about? So my thought process, it depends with what we're trying to fix. Okay. Someone being late or not doing their actual work that they are assigned to. My question always is if their job depended on it, would they do it? 
Okay. So maybe our system of being clear of what late is, of accountability, sometimes our system is broken. And so individuals take advantage. You fix that system and then you watch, right? You write up, you do the next steps and people change. If people don't change, they're choosing not to work for you, especially if it's things that if their job depended on it, they would do it. So that's a different way to deal with that. I'm talking about great manager, great performance, but no one wants to be on their team because this is how they show up. We just can never get this done because they overanalyze and I'm frustrated because you have an individual who has very, a voice of control is very low to someone who is a voice of control is very high and they want to know all the details a hundred percent before they make a move and it frustrates the rest of the team. But you know that they're good, they'll drive results, but that aspect of demoralizing the team and not wanting to work with them is the challenge. So if we work on those things, then they are better. And now my team can use that language to say, don't let my hypervigilance get in the way of this project. It's a kind of way of them checking themselves. And my, cause for example, one voice is hypervigilance. I love working with hypervigilance, except when it goes to the extreme, cause we're never going to know all the things that could go wrong. And sometimes we just have to trust and make the next step. But now that my team knows this, because what I, say, I like about them, because sometimes I like those questions because I never thought about it, because it's not the voice that governs me. Again, I'm a person who there's no fear. Let's do it. Yes, I could fail many times, but my hypervigilant individuals, they do allow me to prevent failure because they'll say, by the way, did you look up this? Did you try this? But they also know when it's going to a very extreme where it's no longer valuable. And that's the beauty of them learning. It's not that these voices are bad. They're really bad when you use them to the extreme. You're amazing. I wanted to ask a question around how do you think of giving back, especially it's something I've also found in Romania. I've I was certainly not the smartest in my class, and yet I've been lucky and fortunate to make it to America, and many haven't in the same way. And I'm wondering how you think about you're in Kenya right now, but I'm just curious how you think about giving back to where you came from. Yes, so I do give back, and I do give back in the capacity that is aligned with things that I found valuable, things that helped me. And so one of the things that I do give back is education, because for me, it was the education that changed my trajectory. So when you go to Kenya and people that are, have all these talents, all right, but education is not free and it, the cost of one individual could be less than me having Starbucks every day, right? So I'm able to look for individuals that have the ambition, but not financial means to stay in school. So I do have pathways to give in that. And then the other one is healthcare. I am in healthcare and I understand the value of having access to healthcare. So the villages where my father grew up, it's very marginalized. We don't have a lot of healthcare. So through Safari Doctors, we've been able to fundraise and when it 
and sail into the most marginalized communities and offer health care, but also we wanted it to be sustainable. So we started creating community health workers and taking the youth instead of them being distracted and doing drugs, they are now in programs that they're youth health ambassadors. And then we started leveraging sports to bring people together in learning what health is about. And so I'm involved in mostly healthcare and education. And now I've, I'm giving back because in another way, and it's through tourism and our country really relies a lot on tourism and due to COVID the past three years, they were very difficult for a lot of the local tour operators. They didn't really survive and it's a backbone of our economy. So I'm here and I've been learning from the different communities and doing purposeful travel. So individuals who are afraid of Africa, they've never been on a safari, but we can pair that into purposeful giving. So part of their trip would be giving to those communities because it's one thing to conserve wild species and wild spaces, but we need to conserve the people because if the people aren't there to tell the stories of this, in, this great places, then we lose, we lose the pathway of getting perspective. The animals are great, but giving you perspective, you need to sit down with people and see how far these tribes have driven. So I'm here and I'm very excited and I've launched my safari to some of the countries that I know most about and they have conservation projects that I could align my forces to. That's awesome. Speaking of, you, you sparked the question when you're talking about the healthcare, back to healthcare in the U.S., you seem to be very optimistic and most people I think I know in, in healthcare and pharmacy are a bit more cynical that healthcare is costs are rising, outcomes aren't improving, patients are very hard, if not impossible to change their habits, whether it's diet, exercise, etc. And so how do you stay optimistic about healthcare? Because healthcare is going to exist thousands of years from today, it's just going to look different. We already are seeing hospital at home, medical at home. Things are changing, so we can't be fixated on how things were, but I find hope in seeing the new innovations with tech-enabled healthcare. Yes, maybe we are frustrated because we are not adapting. Yes, people don't want to come to you anymore. They want you to come to them via devices that they're used to. So how do you now bring a human touch? And I want to be that pharmacist on the screen that is talking to these patients because we still need human connection. So I find that healthcare is just changing. And those who see it changing and they want to be part of what change should look like are going to love it. And those who don't want it and they want it the same are going to hate it but it will exist. New kids are gonna come on the block. New doctors are being graduated every day. New pharmacists are graduating every day, every year. And new tech companies are coming up with innovation. So you're either on board or not, and it's okay, and it's a choice. Yeah. Taylor, do you have any questions? Otherwise, I have a few more. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, and I know we're coming up on time. I When you're giving back, you talked a little bit about this. But you see people in Kenya and you say, oh, they could be a great entrepreneur like I became. Is that part of your thought process around 
empowering kind of entrepreneurship in this way? I know you mentioned education, healthcare. Is that viewed through a lens of entrepreneurship or not as much? Now it is. So before, because I've been giving since the day I graduated, but my means were only possible to make sure they got education, right? They got the primary education. Now I'm, I'm tuning into the youth. Those who I've supported are graduating out of college. And I'm now thinking what's next? Yes, entrepreneurship. So I've been meeting with a lot of youth, seeing their passion and where they see things going. And already we have a tech company that is doing great in Kenya. I know you know about Livia. We had built Livia down in Kenya, and now it actually is solving a lot of the problems. It's bringing telemedicine to rural areas and getting data to understand our people and what they suffer. And then how do we bring the solutions that I've greatly learned and appreciated in the United States, but it's so much easier implemented in Kenya right now. Oh, okay. One, one last question. The, what would you say is the most frustrating or most common misconception that we in America have about Kenya, for instance? Most misconception I get is all it's all about wild spaces and wild animals, but there's more to Kenya. And I've been amazed myself with all the exclusive and luxury places that exist. And then actually t Kenya did mobile banking before the US. This is how advanced Kenya is. So if you study Kenya and how they embraced the local markets, where people are selling in those small kiosks, they were using mobile money transfer. No one uses cash. It's so advanced when it comes to those systems and infrastructure. So yes, Kenya brings a lot of entrepreneurship. There's a lot of beaches too. It's not just the wild spaces and wild species. So Kenya is a, a place for everyone. What are your saboteurs from that exercise? So great question. And my team finally understood who I was. The highest controlling voice for me was out of one to 10 was a five. So no voice really controls me one way or the other. That's why I'm very adaptable. That's why I'm very flexible. And so that top voice that is at a five is a pleaser. But it's not to a point that it could damage me. I'm not going to be pleasing to a point that it would hurt me. It's something right in the middle that it's a voice that I like and it gives me purpose, but it's not enough to hurt me because some of my team, their pleasing was nine. That means they say yes, even when they should say no, and they lead them to burnout. So that was my top one. And then the rest were really like 0 0.5. Like they all laughed. They were like, we should have known. Amina just surfs. She just cruises around. And so they, they have a joke saying, I'm a surfer. I, when the waves are high, I'm there. Waves are low, I'm right there. And I just find balance to get through the day. One last question I had is, it does seem we have so many ideas and so many innovation. So I'm always curious, like, how do you decide which ones to pursue and which ones to say no to? I rely on my diverse team because again, I am likely to say yes, with something's exciting and new, but I do rely on the different aspects that my team brings. And so they ground me to say yes. And 
not at this time. So we've learned even the language of not using but, because but's negative. Yes, Amina, and it will go on the third of our list because most of the things that I'm attracted to have a purpose. They're going to have an impact. They're going to be solving a problem. And there are many ways I see how to solve problems. But prioritization, I do rely on my team. But sometimes they say I do convince them and we end up with spinning many projects at once. But we are, we now say we are off balance, but on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Off balance, but on purpose. Taylor, anything else? No, I'd say thank you so much. This is an inspiring and amazing, incredible story. What would you like to uh, promote? What would, how can oh, yeah. people What's find the, you? How can the they learn more that, about you? That people can donate to. Right now, they should go to Rojo Voyage, R-O-H-O Voyage.com and travel with a purpose. That way it's both. It's fulfilling for you. You're a business owner. Take time out. Let me curate the trip of your life with details, it's personalized, you and your family safe, have local people handling from the time you land to the time you leave, make new friends, while that money goes to giving to those communities. So that's an easy sell. Will do. Thank you again so much, Amina. Thank you so much, Amina. Thank you guys, pleasure. Thank you for rocking with the homies. Taylor Trusty and Flavio sees the day on it. Until next time. Hold it down, hold it down.